0: Our scripture reading this morning is from Luke twenty-four, fifty through fifty-three. When he had led them out to the vicinity of Bethany, he lifted up his hands and blessed them. While he was blessing them, he lifted them, and was he left them and was taken up into heaven. Then they worshipped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy. And they stayed continually at the temple, praising God. In our fast-paced world, it's easy to feel burdened by life. Deadlines, demands, disappointment. It never seems to end. We often carry around our baggage, but rarely stop to count our blessings. Scripture says we have been given every spiritual blessing in Christ. God created you for blessing, and he created you to be a blessing. Sometimes we just need to see from a different perspective. Our series is called Blessed to be a Blessing. It's such an important thing to think about. God's calling on our life, not only what God has done for us, but what He calls to do for others. You know, if you think about blessings, it's very rare, I think, that we actually speak blessings to people. Throughout the Bible, you see it, it's quite common. People have either individually or collectively have blessings spoken over them, and yet we rarely do that these days. In fact, what's the only time we really ever say the words, bless you? When someone sneezes, right? When someone sneezes, we say, bless you, or God bless you. That's a a picture of me over the past two weeks, I think, sneezing and coughing. But that's what we do, right? We say, bless you, when someone sneezes. Why do we do that? We will say that to complete strangers that we don't even know. We will speak a blessing to them. I mean, are we thinking maybe something good will come out of that sneeze? Are we just feeling sorry for them? I just feel so sorry for you and the mess you're making right now. Just bless you. Bless you. I I did a little digging to try to find out where that came from, that tradition, that, that saying. Where did it come from? And people really don't know for sure. Some say it was way back when the belief was that when you sneezed, you released your spirit. Now, I've heard some big sneezes. My dad is the king of big sneezes. I mean, he scared everybody when he sneezed. But I don't think he was releasing his spirit into the room. I don't know for sure. But the idea was that when you sneeze, you release your spirit. And so you needed to offer this prayer of protection that Satan wouldn't come along and pluck your spirit from you. Maybe that's why we say it. Other people say, it goes back to the Middle Ages, the bubonic plague was so widespread, and one of the symptoms of the plague was sneezing, and so the Pope comes along and he says, you need to offer a, a little prayer of blessing that people, when they sneeze, they'll be okay, that they don't have the plague, that they'll live through it, that they'll be fine. I don't know. But don't worry. If you say bless you when someone sneezes, it doesn't mean they have the plague, and it doesn't mean you're Catholic, so it's okay. Okay. Those two words, bless you, it's just a little phrase, isn't it? Probably most of us say that when someone sneezes without even really thinking about it. But behind that little phrase, there is so much meaning. Let's be honest, when you sneeze, we want someone to say bless you, don't we? Have you ever sneezed in a room and no one said bless you and you're like, wait a second here. I want somebody to bless my sneeze. (laughs) My snot needs to be blessed like everybody else's. Maybe they didn't hear me. Maybe I should sneeze again. We want people to notice us. We want people to acknowledge us, don't we? And especially in a moment like that, that moment of vulnerability when you sneeze, you want that moment of vulnerability to be met with acceptance. You know, it sounds silly, but I think that's how many of us live our lives. We long to be noticed, we want to be accepted. We want people to see what we do and how we are and all the things about us and give us a big check mark and say, you're doing great. In fact, this desire in many of us is so strong that it dictates what we do on a daily basis and how we do it. You see, we often spend a lifetime chasing the blessing. Think about it, it looks a lot of different ways for a lot of different people at a lot of different times. But how many of us go onto social media and we post a photo or we post something clever that we came up with, or at least we think it's clever, or we pass along some political propaganda and we post this stuff out there and then we just can't wait. What do we do? We refresh and refresh and refresh, why? Because we wanna see who likes it. We wanna see how many people say that is great you look gorgeous. I agree with you, that is profound, that is hilarious. We wanna see people's comments, we want people to like what we say, what we do. We long for acceptance and approval. That's not the only place we do it, is it? How many times do we dress a certain way to fit in with a certain crowd? How many times is there something inside of us that says, if you drive this car, or you hang out in these places, or you talk to these people, you will be treated differently? You will be looked at as richer than other people, more influential than other people. How often do we get hung up on and fixate on negative comments to us or about us? No matter how many positive things are said, what do we focus on? We focus on the negative things, don't we? Maybe it's at work, maybe it's at home, maybe it's in some other realm of life. Several years ago, when I was teaching one of the classes at an Oklahoma Christian at the end of the semester on student evaluations, there's a place there that you can just put anonymous, open-ended responses. Here's one of the responses for one of my classes. I said this. I really don't like anything about this course. From what people have told me, it was going to be fun and more of a real-life situation. This class really stinks. If anything, I would never recommend anyone to choose him as a teacher. Wow. Now, if you wrote that and you're here today, it's all good. I forgive you and you must have come a long way because you're here sitting here listening to me preach so I guess either I've changed or you've changed you know I'll be honest I didn't remember that comment it's not like it was burning in my brain for all these years I had to go back and look through and it's funny it was in the midst of a whole list of positive things but I just kind of brushed over those and this is the one that stood out how many times do we do that How many times do we redirect a conversation that we are having so that we are now at the center of the conversation? That the spotlight is shining on us. We want to be the hero of the story. We want people to notice what we did and what we said and what we're doing and what we think. We long for people's approval. Sometimes we go through life just wishing our mom or our dad would notice something that we have done and just say, good job and by the way that doesn't necessarily end just when you move out of the house sometimes we judge ourselves and we let other people judge us by things like wins and paychecks and appearances and social status we even do this with God don't we Constantly living with this mindset that says, I have to prove my worthiness to God. I have to show him that I am a good Christian. And we read passages like Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8, where Paul says this, it is by grace you have been saved through faith and this is not from yourselves it is the gift of God not by works so that no one can boast for we are God's workmanship his handiwork created in Christ Jesus to do good works which God prepared in advance for us to do Paul says your salvation has nothing to do with you this idea that you can be good enough that you can do the best you can and God will pick up the slack what does he say there This is not from yourselves. It is a gift of God. And for some of us, this verse and other passages like it, they rub up against a lifetime of legalism. We just can't make it fit because there's this voice inside our heads that says, I am a good person and I have to show God how good I am and I have to show everyone else who's watching how good I am, how much I know, how much I've done, how much I continue to do. Yes, I know God is gracious. He will meet me halfway, but I have to meet him halfway. I have to keep doing good things so God will keep showing me grace. You do know that's not how grace works, right? And yet, that voice inside our head says, I need God's approval. I need people's approval. I need them to see how good I am. You see, here's the problem. Many of us are plagued with this insatiable desire for approval. And we have this desire in a world that is merit-based. I mean, think about different aspects of your life. Most of them are merit-based, grades, paychecks, how you're judged, how you're assessed. So we have this insatiable desire for approval lived in a life that is merit-based. And it produces what most of us are, outcome-oriented people. We work to be rewarded. We wear our good deeds like merit badges. We long for approval from our spouses, from our parents, from our children, from our employers, from total strangers, from online followers, and yes, even from God. Back in around 1937, I think, Gallup came up with what they called the public approval rating. And it was to assess how well the president of our country was doing as the leader. You've probably seen it. It's been in the news lately with our current president. Public approval rating. Can you imagine watching your public approval rating every day? As to how good of a husband or a wife you are. How good of a child you are. How good of a worker you are. How good of a Christian. How good of a person you are. Can you imagine every day checking your public approval rating. And it was going up and down like the stock market. And then what do you have to do? You have to react based on what you see. Uh-oh, it's down a little bit. I need, to, I need to do something different. I need to do something so people will like me. I need to do something so I'll fit in, so they'll say, here's a check mark for you. Or if it's high, you're nervous, I'm gonna lose it. I can't mess this up. It sounds exhausting, doesn't it? And yet, that's how many of us live our lives always seeking outcomes that prompt people's praise and God's approval. Here's the thing I want you to wrestle with today, and I'm going to say it again later, but I'm going to say it up front so you can start working on it right now. And that is this, a life of people-pleasing and approval-seeking is a relentless attempt to get what God has already given you, his blessing. I want to share a couple of what I think are life-giving insights with you this morning. Some things that I came across recently. I first heard some of this from a writer and a speaker named John Tyson. And I hope that that some of this will be as helpful for you as it was for me. And some of the things that we're going to talk about, you've, you've heard before, but I encourage you to listen with a fresh ear. And for some of you, this will be all new. And I hope it will be transformative for all of us. Maybe even revolutionary. It's an important message. So there are four biblical accounts in the New Testament that summarize the life of Jesus. What do we call them? The Gospels, right? Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. The beginning of our New Testament. And there are many similarities and much overlap in these Gospel stories about the details and the stories of Jesus' life, of his death, of his resurrection, his teachings, all of those things. Especially in the first three. That's why they are called the Synoptic Gospels. S-Y-N, sin, same, they're very similar. And yet there are some differences too, aren't there? If you've read the four Gospels, you know, there seems to be some differences in some of the details or some of the order of events. That doesn't mean there are contradictions. It means there were inspired writers who had a little bit different original audiences and a little bit different theological purposes. And so those original audiences and those theological purposes help shape and help frame how they tell the story of Jesus. So take, for example, the end of the gospel story, how each of the writers ends his gospel. Again, of course, inspired by the Holy Spirit. Around here, we love Matthew's ending. In chapter 28, Jesus gathers his disciples on a mountain. He tells them that all authority has been given to him from heaven and from earth. And he tells them to go and to make disciples of all nations, baptizing them and teaching them to obey everything he has commanded them. And he assures them, I will be with you always to the very end of the age. We call it the Great Commission. And here at Edmund, it is our commission. It is our mission, it is our purpose, to go and to make disciples, to be disciples, growing, maturing as disciples, who go into the world and make disciples. We love Matthew's ending. But this morning, I want you to look at Luke's ending. And I want you to notice a couple of details that maybe you haven't really seen before. And I want you to see how profoundly important they are, not just for those disciples in that day, but for you as a disciple today. Remember, Jesus has been crucified. He's been resurrected from the grave. He has appeared to many people, including his disciples. And yet they are struggling to get their minds around what they are seeing, what they are witnessing. It's not every day that someone you saw die now is talking to you. So Jesus says this in Luke chapter 24, verse 36. While they were still talking about this, Jesus himself stood among them. And he said to them, peace be with you. They were startled and frightened thinking they saw a ghost. He said to them, "Why are you troubled and why do you doubt? Why do your doubts rise in your minds? Look at my hands and my feet. It is I myself. Touch me and see. A ghost does not have flesh and bones as you see I have." When he had said this, he showed them his hands and feet. And while they still did not believe it because of joy and amazement, he asked them, "Do you have anything here to eat?" They gave him a piece of broiled fish. And he took it and he ate it in their presence. Now, I don't think Jesus was necessarily just starving in that moment and said, i got to have something to eat. I think he's trying to get them to see that he has a resurrected body, that he's not this ghost floating around that they have to be afraid of, that it's him, Jesus. And so he eats something to show them that he is real. Verse 44, he said to them, This is what I told you while I was with you. Everything must be fulfilled that is written about me in the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms. Then he opened their minds so they could understand the scriptures. He told them, This is what it is written The Messiah will suffer and rise from the dead on the third day, and repentance for the forgiveness of sins will be preached in his name to all nations, beginning at Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. I am going to send you what my Father has promised, the Holy Spirit, but stay in the city until you have received, or till you have been clothed with power. From on high. So imagine the flood of emotions going on in the minds of these disciples. They see Jesus in his resurrected body, but they can't get their minds around this. They are excited and thrilled, but they're also afraid and nervous. They're curious. They don't know what to think. And Jesus says, It's me. Here I am. And this is all part of God's plan. You see, from long ago, God had planned that I would go to the cross, that I would be raised from the dead. And you have seen all of this. You have heard my teachings. You have seen me come back to life. You are witnesses to these things. And so God has a job for you, Jesus tells them. I have a job for you. You are going to proclaim to the nations what you have seen and heard. So Jesus assures them, Jesus comforts them, but with that comfort he gives them, he also gives them a charge. We have a job for you, a calling for you, but there's more. Notice what Jesus does next. This is so important. Verse 50, when he had led them out to the vicinity of Bethany, he lifted up his hands and he blessed them. While he was blessing them, he left them and was taken up into heaven Then they worshiped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy. And they stayed continually at the temple, praising God. I want you to picture this scene in your mind. Can you imagine? Jesus has his disciples there. And what does he do? He lifts his hands above them. And he speaks a blessing over them. And the text says, while he is blessing them, while he is blessing them, he is taken up into heaven. I don't know what that looked like. I don't know how Jesus was taken up into heaven, if he just sort of floated, if he sort of disappeared. But I know this, the last image, the final image that they had of Jesus was of him blessing them, with his hands outstretched over them, speaking a word of blessing for them. That's the last image of Jesus that they saw. That's what they took with them as they carried out their calling to be witnesses to the world. Jesus' command may have been the foundation for their calling, but I think it was his blessing that fueled their calling and made it possible. So Luke goes straight into Acts, which is sort of part two of his narrative. And what do we see throughout Acts? We see these disciples free not to work to earn God's blessing. They already have it. We don't see them doing what they do throughout Acts so that God will look on them and give them a check mark so their approval rating will be high. They know they have already been blessed. Jesus, in the last image they have of him, is raising his hands above them and blessing them. They know they are blessed. And it makes all the difference. They are free not to earn his blessing, but to live with that blessing to give their lives freely and that's what they did they lived from blessing rather than for blessing well Jesus didn't just model this this otherworldly kind of blessing as he gave a blessing we see it as he received a blessing from his own heavenly father go back think about the way Jesus' ministry started the first 30 years of his life, as far as we know, he's pretty much off the grid, isn't he? We don't hear much about Jesus. But then it's time for him to begin his ministry. It's time to, for him to begin his life's calling, to reveal the nature of the kingdom. The kingdom of heaven is near. It's time for him to teach, to do miracles. It's time to him, for him to go to the cross. And it begins with his baptism. Mark tells us in Mark chapter 1 verse 9, At that time, Jesus came from Nazareth in Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. Just as Jesus was coming up out of the water, he saw heaven being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, You are my Son, whom I love. With you I am well pleased. That's what his heavenly Father said to Jesus. We've said it before, but parents, that is what your child needs to hear. Not just one time. Throughout his or her lifetime, you are my child. You belong to me. I love you. I am so pleased with you. And not just when they make the straight A's or hit the game-winning basket, but just for being your child. Notice when God gives Jesus this blessing. He speaks this blessing over His beloved Son. Remember, for 30 years, Jesus pretty much lived in obscurity. Isaiah in his prophecy tells us that there is nothing special about Jesus' appearance that would make him noticeable, that would make him stand out. I know when we look at the Jesus movies, he's, he's the guy that stands out immediately. The stark white robe, the long flowing hair, bright blue eyes, fair-skinned. I don't think that's what Jesus looked like. I think he pretty much looked like every other Jewish guy around him at the time. And so what is it about Jesus that causes him to receive this blessing? From From a human standpoint, he hasn't earned it, has he? What has he done? I mean, he looks like everybody else, hadn't really done much, So before he does any miracle, before he preaches to the masses, before he chooses the twelve or challenges the Pharisees, before he goes to the cross or walks out of the tomb, his heavenly Father gives him a blessing. You are my Son, whom I love. With you I am well pleased. And Tyson says, from that deep sense of identity and value, Jesus is free from the tyranny of outcomes to love and to serve and to give himself away. And that's exactly what Jesus did, didn't he? He didn't try to earn his father's blessing. He knew he already had it. And it shaped his identity. It shaped his purpose. It gave him passion for for helping others, for blessing others. He knew his father was with him and for him. Jesus knew he was blessed and he knew he was blessed to be a blessing and so fast forward now to the end of his ministry what we just talked about before he goes to be at his father's side for all of eternity what does he do he knows that his disciples need to know that they are blessed well what have they done to deserve that blessing in fact the last time we saw them they weren't exactly at their highest moment their peak performance they were running away they were scattered, and, and, and leaving him deserting him in fear and yet that's the moment that Jesus chooses to bless them he makes sure they know that they are blessed before they do any miracle before they speak in any tongue before Pentecost before they face the fires of persecution that we see throughout acts Jesus blesses them he lifts his hands And he speaks blessing over them. Blessing came at the beginning. You see, there's a big difference between living for blessing and living from blessing. Huge difference. And this is something some of us need to wrestle with. When we live for blessing, we need people to see how good we are. We need God to see how good we are. When we live from blessing, we know that the only goodness we have comes from Jesus. When we live for blessing, we tend to compare ourselves to other people. And we also have the tendency to judge them, especially in the places that we perceive them to be inferior to us. But when we live from blessing, we identify with people. We empathize with people. We know that the ground at the cross is level, that we are all in the same place. Broken sinners desperately in need of the grace of God when we live for blessing obedience becomes this this daily price I pay to win God's favor but when we live from blessing obedience is my response to already having God's favor in my life when we live for blessing faithfulness is measured by quantifiable things like how much, and how many, and how often. When we live from blessing, faithfulness is seen in a true and vibrant connection to the true source of life, the vine, and then this life that bears the fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. When we live for blessing, we constantly live in fear. We constantly live with guilt, wondering if we know enough, if we've done enough, if we've saved enough people. But when we live from blessing, we live in peace, with joy, knowing that Jesus has done everything. When we live for blessing, we constantly live for god's approval but when we live from blessing we are free to live our lives knowing that he already has given us that big difference don't you want to be freed from the tyranny of outcomes Don't you want to get rid of this approval rating system that is in your mind, that constantly keeps you on this treadmill to do more, to be more, to have all the attention on you, to compare yourself to others, to be judged by your outcomes and your performance and how good you have done? Do you remember what his heavenly father said to his beloved son as he came up out of that water? You are my son whom I love. I am so pleased with you the same thing happens to you and to me when you come up out of that water that's what God says to you heaven opens up and this voice says you are my son you are my daughter whom I love with you I am so pleased first John 3 verse 1 See what great love the Father has lavished on us that we would be called children of God and that is what we are. He doesn't say, that's what you will be someday. If you just do enough, if you're just good enough, if you just know enough, I'll make you my child. He says, that's what you are. You come up out of that water, your Father says, you are my child whom I desperately love and I am so pleased with you. But God, I haven't done anything yet. I know. But I love you. And I'm pleased with you. You see, that's living from blessing. So stop living for blessing and start living from blessing. Let God free you from the tyranny of outcomes. Stop this people-pleasing, approval-seeking, never-ending treadmill that you're running on Paul reminds us in Romans chapter 5 that we have been set free in Christ. Freedom. Do you understand what that is? It's what all of us want, and yet sometimes when we taste it, we we just have a tendency to go back, to go back to, to slavery, just like the Israelites did in the Old Testament. God has freed them He is providing for them. And what do they constantly say to God? God, this this isn't good. We We don't know what to do. We don't like this. We want to go back to when we were slaves in Egypt. So many times we have that same mentality. Paul says, You have been set free in Christ. Live as free people. Don't continue to let yourself be a slave to approval from friends, from followers, from family. Because here's the truth. You may not get their approval. It's unfortunate. I wish it weren't that way. But you know it's true. You may not always get their approval. But also, stop being a slave to getting God's approval. Because here's the thing you already have it. And He's the one that matters most. And He's already given it to you. Living for blessing. Is not freedom, that's slavery. Christ came to set us free from sin and death and anything that Satan will use to keep us from living a life from a place of blessing. I saw an interesting story. You you may not know this, I, I didn't know this, but the tire company Michelin, they make car tires, but evidently they've also created the world's most renowned guide to fine dining. They have the Michelin Guide, this system of ranking restaurants and chefs, one to three stars. And each star is so vitally important. One star can make the difference between the success and the failure of a chef or a restaurant. And that's why the restaurant world was so surprised when in 2017, famous French chef, Sebastian Bros said, I no longer want to be judged by the Michelin Guide. I'm done. For 20 years, over 20 years, his restaurant had received three stars. That's the highest rating, three stars. The judges said that his food was spellbinding. No one's ever called anything I've ever made spellbinding. (laughs) Certainly not the student who filled out the evaluation those years ago. This guy was on top of the world, but he said, at age 46, I'm done. I'm done with the pressure of trying to get those stars. I just want to cook. I just want to be a chef. I just want to use my passion. He said, I I want to be free. I'm redefining what success is, he said. I'm done with it. I'm done with the stress. I'm done with the pressure. I just want to be and do what I'm called to be and do. It's kind of interesting that Michelin went along with that for about a year then after about a year they said no we need to judge your restaurant and so they put him back under their system and guess what they gave him two stars (laughs) wouldn't you know it but it didn't matter he said I don't care he said I don't care if I'm less famous I don't care how many stars he said I'm free now you know as Christians sometimes we even joke don't we we joke about receiving a star in our crown. You know, we, we did so much. Man, you got an extra star in your crown. And we're just, we're just kind of joking about that. But at the core is that mindset. It's that voice that says you got to do more. You got to earn it. You got to show God how good you are. You have to earn his blessing. Keep living, and maybe someday he will bless you. Let me say it again. A life of people-pleasing and approval-seeking is a relentless attempt to get what God has already given you, his blessing. Maybe it's time for you to let go of the pressure, the pressure of being good or great or perfect or productive or the best, and just live with the blessing God has given you. His approval his approval of you matters most, and he's already given it to you. So live with it. And when you do that, when you live from blessing, you are now free to give your life away. And that's what God calls us to do to give our lives away. For his cause, in his name, to advance his kingdom. That's what life is about not about seeking the approval of people, not about chasing the blessing of God that he's already given us. I understand that a message like this can be easily distorted or misunderstood. Did he say that obedience doesn't matter? That what we do doesn't matter? Of course not. Read your New Testament. Please, please, please read your New Testament. And read Jesus and walk with Jesus and learn from Jesus and understand the difference between living for blessing and living from blessing. Experience the freedom that Christ provides. If we can help you with that today, we want to do that. It begins with giving your life to Christ. That's the beginning. That's not the end. That's the beginning. And when you come up out of the water, your heavenly Father says, you are my son, you are my daughter, whom I love with you. I am so pleased. Maybe you're ready to do that today. We'd be thrilled to help you with that. Maybe we can encourage you, lift you up in prayer, support you in some way. Certainly we want to do that. If you're online, you can go to our website, reach out at our prayer page. If you're here today, a couple of our shepherds in there Wives will be in the parlor, a room right behind me. They're going to pray together, so you can join them. They'll pray for you, encourage you, or you can come down to the front. If there's something we can do, we invite you to come as we stand and sing.